Hello, I'm M. And I'm E. And welcome to Blood and Turf, a podcast about the links between the ideology of turfs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, and fascism, cults, pseudoscience, and other reactionary political phenomena. This episode will be a Stalinist show trial. In the doc, turfs, and we, your hosts, will be judge, jury, lawyers, cops, executioners, and witnesses. But what is the crime? We wish to make the case that the anti-trans movement has created a hostile environment within UK politics for trans people, that its adherents have successfully propagated bigotry and stochastic violence, and that the Labour Party and the broad left in the UK is at the heart of this phenomenon. Before we start, a content warning. This episode contains mentions and descriptions of general transphobia and bullying, as well as references to violent incidents and sexual assault. So, co-counsel, um, I think we should describe for the, the general public, which is obviously the other jury, aside from us, like we're, we're the jury that will deliver the, the, the verdict, which is obviously guilty, which we've decided in advance. I think we should describe what the, what the scene of the crime looks like. Right. So the British left in general is um, it, it's not having a good time with trans people. No, uh, no. It's not having a good time with trans people at all. It's uh, whether that's the, like the Labour Party or like, uh, you know, little little communist organisations or like anarchist organisations. Like generally, the British left doesn't like trans people, feel comfortable with trans people or know that trans people exist. And this kind of like either exhibits itself in like a conscious ideological way where there's like specific stances that people hold that are explicitly anti-trans in some manner. Or it's like the the kind of like the classic uh, like environmental prejudice where like people just like don't give a shit in terms of improving things for their comrades. And yeah. we're mainly going to be talking about the ideological component of this phenomenon in this episode. Yeah, uh, kind of like uh, your your average um, oh what they called XR your average XR anarchist not being down with the trans terminologies is not enough to land your place in the world's coolest show trial. No, indeed, indeed. You're not going to go to like the transgender Hague for forgetting to do pronoun checks at the beginning of your meeting. However, there are a, a, a large number of people who are going to the Hague for trans crimes. So let's talk about stochastic violence. Hmm, yeah. Um, so stochastic violence is this topic which has become quite popular particularly in the Trump era because of the like the lone wolf shooter phenomenon where as like a as like a mutation of the school shooter phenomenon in in the US this concept of a a lone wolf terrorist began to be evolved by like american media pundits as a way of like rationalizing like extreme violence within like very young people in society and this was particularly prominent with like uh, spree killers and and mass shootings which happened a hell of a lot at the immediate end of the obama presidency and the beginning of the trump presidency and the phrase like lone wolf is generally like quite widely derided by serious experts in like extremism and terrorism because there's no such thing as like a lone wolf actor they're they're always like acting with some kind of support network and if that's not a specific terrorist organization or a specific extremist group then it's like an ideological community that they're a part of that helped like radicalize them and gave them 
if not the actual physical tools like you know the bombs or the the, the machine guns or whatever it gave them the ideological tools to do what they did and in kind of response to wanting to 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 debunk this lone wolf concept the phrase stochastic terrorism or stochastic violence became popularized and the idea is that like if we're talking about actual terrorism which isn't a thing that happens that much in relation to transphobia although it does arguably sometimes happen what stochastic violence refers to is the person who is the stochastic terrorist isn't the one who is going out there and performing mass shootings or, or like bombing synagogues. The stochastic terrorist is the person who, you know, like Donald Trump or Sean Hannity or, or like Alex Jones or any of these like major American right wing demagogues engages in like chronic agitational rhetoric that creates an environment and creates a mindset within their audience that gives them the ideological tools and like primes them as like an agent of political violence and so like the person who goes out and does the violence is sort of like the tool of this political phenomenon whereas the person who's actually really instigating it on a structural level is the stochastic terrorist and i suppose a core part of our case is that ideological turfs in uh, like the British kind of like political establishments are stochastically violent towards trans people. Yeah, in a very successful way, especially um, <clears throat> through in- like uh, political institutions. Yeah, and like columns, you know, big Twitter threads, uh, online forums like Mumsnet or whatever. Yeah, and, and, even, and even things like, you know, trade unions and pickets and very specific political stomping grounds and very specific political battles. Yeah, like, because this is very much a thing of, like, the culture war, it's fought within social territory, uh, which is why you often see these debates and these fights spring up within political campaign organizations, NGOs, minor political parties, trade union organizations, activist groups, that kind of stuff, or, or just within like quote unquote organizing spaces, like your local like left wing cafe might have a turf in it or something. And one day that might cause an argument over her seeing or him seeing the wrong kind of person in the bathroom. It's also one of the reasons why British turfs are just on a completely different level. Because in a, if you look at two, um, Two factions which have had rhetorical and ideological crossover are um, Christian fundamentalists and, and British turfs. But you look at Christian fundamentalists and, and their capacity to enact violence is, is them um, terrorizing you know, uh, people outside of family planning clinics. That's not to say that violence isn't terrifying. And you know, people, people and doctors have died by being shot uh, or, or, or terrorized at those clinics. But turfs, instead of doing anything like that because they don't have the capacity, and there's not very many of them, what they've instead done is, is colonized like media outlets and, and like CLPs and, uh, and, and, and specifically gone on the political offensive very successfully. I should say that like when we, when, when we say like they don't have the ability, it's not that small groups can't do violence, it's that like structurally turfism doesn't have the ability as a movement to engage in violence in that specific way. No. And I think that I think that's one of the reasons why the left has ignored them as a kind of extreme right wing or extreme reactionary force is because they do not have the capacity to 
who enact certain kind of physical violence, people have dismissed them and then they have specifically neglected this political capacity, which they now have an absolute stranglehold over and everyone's going, oh fuck, Brit Brit Britain, Britain's like, Britain's fucked, Tufts have got it, it's haunted. Right, yeah, it's, it's, it's essentially like a, a, a replication entirely, well, almost not entirely, but like largely within quote unquote progressive political spheres of the like the genuine concerns phenomenon um which cropped up in the early stages of the anti-migrant movement in in western political circles which is also now completely dominating uk political discourse and like it, it is borderline impossible to find a major political figure who is both rhetorically and practically pro-refugee and pro-migrant in a way that TERFs are also attempting to establish, and so far have been very successful in establishing, for the civil rights of transgender people. Yeah, and it's a similar level of, of, of not necessarily fringe, but they've managed to move the rhetoric around uh, borders and immigration so much that saying, you know, like, no borders, no nations, and we, and we don't need controls, and, 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 and I don't have any genuine concerns, is seen as hugely, hugely radical, and like particularly the the the, the no control stance is, is is seen as being like so naive that it doesn't count as a as an opinion. There's there's no way to participate in electoral politics and and ha and have those views and espouse those views and be taken seriously at all. Right, and like the the equivalent for this for that they're attempting to establish is that they want to make it, and I think they have essentially kind of won. On, on this point to a large extent. They want to make it so that you can't say things like um, trans people should be able to self-ID and have elective medical treatment on the NHS at any point that they wish, provided they're, they're like past the stage of Gillick competency and providing that like other consent laws apply regarding their age. You're never gonna get a mainstream political figure stating that, even though um, those things are essentially reflected like either in law or within common sense. Yeah, which is the huge divergence, um, actually, because obviously, um, you know, the genuine concerns around immigration materially, um, you know, still abhorrent, but um, materially <clears throat> makes a lot more sense in terms of trying to sell it to voters because you can play to um, the fact that the, the, the borders are very important for nation states and, that, and they're very important for... Uh, how England and Britain r run things in a capitalist way, whereas uh, you know trans bodily autonomy is is on the surface completely different. It should be a, a real non-issue. Before the turfs, you know, started doing all of this, it should have been like the 2004 Equality Act, where people didn't really hear about the agitation towards it until after it was done, and it has changed things, but passed relatively without ceremony. Whereas now it's there's a there's a joke that you know the Guardian has an anti-trans has an anti-trans article out every single day and it's just like there's not that many of us yeah it's like the, the even if we were to take it from like a a like a critical uh, gender studies perspective the threat that like transness poses to like political normal life is is like a conceptual threat to like these like structural bits of the apparatus, like the whole nuclear family idea and the patriarchy. And, but like the way that it threatens them is largely conceptual. And it's not in, in a way that like 
requires that capital is going to have to do some kind of thing that is the equivalent of hiring scabs like they're not going to get like gender scabs to sort out the fact that people want hrt it doesn't actually affect circulation of capital it doesn't actually like directly form an assault on 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 like the widespread adoption of like particular forms of family life it might disrupt particular families but it doesn't actually destroy all of that on its own it might be part of a generalized attempt at, a, at, a, at, a, at an offensive against that apparatus but it's not it's not kryptonite you know the, yeah the most clear material things would be things such like trans rights basically shoring up the nhs which like god knows every single person in power uh, in the last 25 years has, has, has been all too happy for the nhs to die but you know even then it's things like that it's it's not like uh, the trans body is inherently a problem for capital and borders and yet the Turks have gone at it with much the same gusto as uh, as genuine concerns about uh, immigration and, and, and other things like that yeah it's it's interesting it's um it's interesting that uh there is been this degree of of reaction um and i think the the fact that there has been this degree of reaction is less something that we can apply to to like big structural economic forces and it's more something about the nature of a specific political milieu and like the people within it um so we we uh, given that it's time for us to move on to describing the perpetrator and guilty party in this fucking horrendous crime um the turf sphere <laughs> and let's take our attention to the turf sphere um so this is a it's like a fucking hamster ball with like julie yeah. bindle and linda bellos and they're just like rolling around like london and random ngo conferences handing out leaflets and talking about bathrooms no they don't have <laughs> one of those money guns for the leaflets uh, oh god yeah 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 they've got they've got a fucking t-shirt cannon they've got all of it so it's like the ball has turrets, but one turret is for the leaflet gun and the other turret is for the adult human female t-shirt cannon. And there's like disco LEDs in the ball at all times, but no one in the ball is having a good time. No, no, no one in the ball is having a good time at all. It's not like they're not actually like cheerful little hamsters trotting around having loads of fun and getting some good exercise for their high metabolism body. They're, they're, they're just kind of like stomping around, um, like feeding weird lines to like Hadley Freeman in The Guardian and like trying to persuade John McDonnell that like getting rid of trans people in the Labour Party is actually socialist praxis. Which doesn't sound like very much fun to me, personally. No, no one in the no one in the Tusker is having a good time, and that's why you know we're here to bring them justice. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, no, we're not here to bring them justice. Stop being a fucking idiot, E. We're 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 the Stalinist show trial. We're here to send them to the trans gulag. Remember? Yeah, yeah, but you know, it's justice for us. I would send everyone to the. Every, I would send every everyone who's ever written for a mainstream paper to the trans gulag. That's justice. Wow, Owen Jones fucked one thousand years. <laughs> I mean, I mean, if he, you know, as the turf say, if a couple of, if there's a little bit of friendly fire, it's all in service of the cause. 
Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. And that is a direct quote, ladies and germs, from one of the people who we'll be examining in this in this uh in this episode. So yeah, the perpetrator. Who who is who is the perpetrator? Who are who are the the people? Um, I guess there's there's like groupings and there's individuals. Shall we start with groupings? Yes. To me, I I would do the groupings uh, in terms of. Uh, a lot of them have been in the orbit, if not in part of uh, the Labour Party and others. Um, and then either split off or, or arced around and joined other places. And then there are, there are groups that are entirely separate to electoral politics, but in terms of early British turf history, the Labour Party is, is kind of where it's at for me. I, I don't know how you, how, how you would characterize it. Yeah, what I would say is that like in in the period of time when like turfism managed to mainstream itself and stop being like a a rather esoteric political concern the the main field of battle was and is within the labor party and that's over the last kind of like maybe not as much time as a decade but there's a lot of there's a lot of time prior to like the corbyn period which is a critical period where there was like preliminary events that were kind of laying the ground for this and that kind of goes right back to the 80s um which is when people like julie bindle kind of like cut their teeth and were were like you know actually you know arguably doing loads of good work as feminist activists but it's it's also where like the ideological preparation was done to create what we now know as turfism, um, and like the groupings, the groups that are within the left that are kind of like critical to the institutionalization of turf rhetoric are are all connected to uh, particular factions within the Labour Party, and there's there's like both right wing factions like that are connected to Blairism and left-wing factions that are kind of like more aligned with like the morning star and uh certain there's no specific trotskyist groups that are really super turfy um but like there's sort of like a a, a slightly trotskyist vibe to some of this stuff uh and there's also things to consider like uh like blue labor um and like the the trade union connections a lot of senior turfs have like long-standing connections to the trade union movement and last but not least there's like the non-electoral left which still has like overlap with labor in that realm you get groups like the communist party of britain um and the various kind of like middling to tiny marxist leninist groups some of which we're going to be looking at specifically and have some absolutely incredible things to say on the subject needless to say all of these fuckers are just like non-stop citing the 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 friedrich engels book about like the origin of the family and like nothing has ever put me off friedrich engels more i was never like a huge fan of the man but like jesus christ so where did this all start for the because to me it seems like a lot of the things which make british turf kind of like the but which make the turf sphere are specific forms of of second wave and like radical feminism and now quite liberal feminism especially with you know blue labor and 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 uh stella creasy and all that lot it seems like before the turf sphere 
there were people who were very outward, you know, very proud of being a specific kind of feminist and a specific kind of feminist that, as we see now with hindsight, was, you know, middle class almost entirely, white almost entirely, professional almost entirely, and using, even back then, gender essentialism to flatten kind of like all of the contradictions around their feminism not being intersectional, but before they had become the turf sphere and before they had fixated on on trans people as a way to uh, as a way to buy into the gender essentialism to fully flatten kind of like all of these contradictions which like to me i would i would place it like starting in the 80s but with uh with like union stuff and with ken livingston i think the the angry women documentary that that you found was very very informative so to explain E found this this documentary that is called Angry. It's literally just called Angry Women, and it's a, a BBC Four documentary. Women spelled W I M M I N. Um, it's a BBC Four documentary from like 2007, and it's part of a series on like the political radical movement. And it looks at sort of the the, the forefront of the the uh, the women's movement. Or like the, the the revolutionary feminist movement in in like the 1970s and 80s, particularly centered around a political activist group that got started in Leeds, um, and this this activist group included people like Linda Bellos and Julie Bindle, who are now kind of like critical to the the turf project. Uh, also, like people like um, Elizabeth Carolla, Sue O'Sullivan. If you're familiar with kind of like, if you're one of the people who who like really digs down into turfdom, you'll probably recognise some of these names. But yeah, that that's essentially what the what the what the documentary is. It's it's looking at their activist careers, and like the reason why it's interesting is that. So I ended up googling a lot of the people who they interviewed for this documentary, and a lot of them have moved from being people who were like literally going out in the street with burning torches in the middle of the night and like holding like really militant rallies like stuff that like nowadays would be like the kind of protest that you don't really get in britain anymore where there's like a a serious visual and physical edge to it uh which is kind of the norm in america but really doesn't happen in britain like if you had that now it'd be fucking incredible but now all of these people who they've interviewed for this documentary are like either columnists or they're in like the NGO world doing like consultancy stuff or they are Labour Party councillors. And like what I feel is that like the, the story of the, the women who were activists in this organization is kind of like a classic story of like organized radicalism becoming institutionalized and the institutionalization seeping into the ideology of the radicals themselves and i don't think that there's anybody who there who this is like more apparent for in the turf movement than these specific people because of the way that they now operate and how different it is to the way that they started out when they were like originally like quite a challenge to power quote unquote and now instead of doing like these like you know like street demonstrations and like very radical actions they're largely doing stuff via media social social media institutional connections to the trade union movement and the labor party and like political 
mainstream stuff. Yeah, it's 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 really telling that pretty much every turf that uh, any any trans person has awareness of, so any big name, will either be high up in you know journalism or trade unionism or labor counselling, or will be married to or a partner uh, a, a sibling of or related to in some way someone of the same ilk. It really all does trace back to these kind of like clusters of connections, and then the kind of like evolutions and iterations thereof you can trace like a turf lineage pretty much back to this period or maybe like arguably like the seventies and like no more. Yeah. I do. I do want to stress um, that at the time that these people got started and that the name of the, 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 the primary group where this all started is this, this organization called the Leeds revolutionary feminist group, which operated in the seventies and eighties, hugely influential organization. And what you've, kind of got to realize is that prior to this uh you know like feminism existed as a political force in britain but it was largely it was largely liberal it was it was focused on on things like workplace stuff but it was kind of it was perceived as unwilling to get its hands dirty with like the grimier side of things and the leeds revolutionary feminist group was credited with organizing things like the original reclaim the night marches and thing and it developed the concept of political lesbianism necessarily originated it but it was a a significant force in developing that concept within the feminist movement they were active in like campaigning against like victim blaming in relation to like the yorkshire ripper murders which are like probably the most famous serial killer case in the uk like this was a, a an influential group, and it's just very weird, but also very depressing what happened to these people who started out being arguably quite cool. Well, the um, there is a someone called Dick Allen Theodore has an article called "The Stagnant Tide," which actually is like a, a thesis about like what happened. And he places it at basically the general economic situation. And the stagnant tide that he refers to is, is what leads to modern day 2020 British turfs. And, and, and he dates it literally with, it's the failure to pass the ERA, uh, where he says unions enter a terminal decline. Uh, not only did the forces that created suburbia stop growing, they began to recede. At the same time, it becomes acceptable for women to enter the workplace. It becomes necessary for them to do so. Second wave feminism does not evaporate. The conflicts that necessitate it still exist, but the momentum is gone and it stagnates. Mass social change looks impossible, so the energy flows two in two directions, representational and individual successes in the form of girl bossism and separatism. These two directions can't change social conditions. They are how individuals deal with being unable to change social conditions. In a, in a way, turfism is, is like the girl bossism and and separatism sort of being reunited but not in a way that like retains its original power in a way that like manifests its lack of ability to actually challenge the system yeah like the the stars of the stars of angry women at the time were separatists and then we come back to them in 2020 and they are girl bosses who are married to uh, you know to, to these like colonists or, or, or like bankers or whatever not not entirely to be fair you know a good chunk no. of them are lesbians 
Well, yes, of, of the original documentary, but of, of, the, of, of a lot of, of the, the vast majority of, of big name turfs, they went from political lesbianism and like, and like separatism to being, you know, being married to like a Minecraft uh, esports person or whatever. But it, it, it is interesting that people have, have, have basically shafted one for the other. Like you, you, the, the, the separatism is, is one thing when you are like, oh, fuck men, they're terrible, hate all men. And then when you're working with a man in, in the office of, you know, the Morning Star or, or the Telegraph, men are all right. So then you go and you switch to the, to the girl boss. Not everyone, but it, it, in terms of like the general character of what seems to have happened with like this weird political media class. It, it very much seems to have been like they they both have met and intertwined in like the absolute worst way. The trade union side of this, like as you've just said, a lot of these people are like institutionally either socially connected to the trade union movement or part of it themselves. Particularly people like uh, Ruth Sirwatka, who is the founder of Women's Place. Um, now. Ruth Sirwatka is the wife of Mark Sirwatka, who is the president of the TUC. She's written multiple Morningstar articles, all of which, as far as I can tell, are about things to do with transgender rights or like the, the Gender Recognition Act. Like Sirwatka and people like her, and there are like quite a few people like her, are part of this like section of the turf movement which intersects with uh, you know, specific unions, things like, like unions like the RMT, uh, Unite and Unison, like the kind of like the big old guard of the union crowd. And those are often bound up with like upper echelon TUC stuff, like the kind of things where you'll see like some really kind of like complex article every couple of years about like some bullshit that like Len McCluskey is dealing with. And then there'll be some kind of like weird thing about how it intersects with like internal Labour Party squabbles. And this very much reflects how there's like, uh, I guess what you, would, what you would call a mutual sphere of interest, both within the trade union movement and within the Labour Party for a lot of kind of like senior people in the anti-trans movement as a whole because of like the mainstream nature of like the big kind of like public and commercial sector unions and how heavily involved they are with like the Labour Party right-wing social democrat project and how helpful that is in terms of being an ecology with like the class interests of turfism. Yeah, it's, 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 because you see a lot of these, uh, there are lots of incidents where it will be like a blow up at a, a political event, which may not be specifically, you know, a Labour Party thing, but might be Labour adjacent or trade union adjacent, where there will be, you know, the woman at your local Beck2 meeting or um, someone at your local socialist book fair will suddenly be handing out these leaflets and then an entire kind of like, lefty electoral adjacent area will suddenly take stock and all decide whether they they all become like a bellwether essentially and depending on how high up in like whatever whichever kind of social space like um the turf may be and they and they often are very high up because of this kind of like um this like uh class um makeup of like a lot of these turfs 
these groups will either flip one way or t'other. Like there will be this kind of like violent, kind of like politically violent, either expulsion of uh, of the turf and a reaffirmation of trans support, which then triggers, you know, opinion pieces and 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 shamings from all of the other social nodes which didn't flip that way, or the ones where they all where it becomes like, oh yeah, you know, like how the Guardian went from publishing a few trans articles to being widely regarded as quite anti-trans and the BBC like that wasn't present a few years ago but you had all, all of these kind of like all of these social scenes becoming bellwethers and and then and as more and more flipped one way or the other it would, tr it would trigger others and, and like that's how things have been mainstreamed through like individuals within these spheres it's not just that they're bellwethers they're not just like indicative positions or like indicative organizations they do like also exert influence in their own right and there's there has been some kind of like nature to the system that has meant that like a lot of them have um gone in the turf direction yes i mean i mean pretty much everyone has i was i was being a bit more optimistic <laughs> yeah i think i think to mix well, metaphors it's like dominoes than bell and then bellwethers yeah um, you know what it is it's it's the um hold on a second we've accidentally done anti-communism i'm afraid <laughs> what you have just described is henry kissinger's theory about how the communists were going to take over southeast asia um, <laughs> which unfortunately does sort of situate women's place as the Viet Cong, uh, which I feel like is giving them far too much credit. Okay, well, we'll say this. It's not anti-communism because I was agreeing with Kissinger in so much as he viewed communism as a reactionary force. And I, who is who I'm not Kissinger, have correctly identified women's place as a reactionary force. And our tactical analyses are identical because we are both operating under the assumption, although he's wrong and I'm right, for reasons, for commie reasons, um, that, 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 that we've identified reactionary forces. So there. It's not anti-communism, I promise. However, given that we're going to be criticising the Marxist-Leninists, which, <laughs> which, is, which is who I was going to move on to next before a short interlude about how the anarchists have also fucked up on this scene. Sorry, Mark. Sorry, guys. Um, yeah, given that we're going to be moving on to criticising the Marxist-Leninists in Britain, it does mean that our enormous tanky fan base is going to just fucking leave overnight. So thanks for that one. There is a tendency within British Marxist-Leninism, which is a rather conservative tradition within Marxist-Leninism as a global movement. Like British Marxist-Leninism is really rather socially conservative most of the time. Yeah, there is a tradition within uh, British Marxist-Leninism of like really going in for the class reductionist position. Again, this is something you also often see with certain parts of the trade union movement like the RMT, uh, like certain bits of the public sector unions that kind of stuff where there's a lot of people who are ostensibly Marxist-Leninists and might have like a paper membership of the Communist Party of Britain or something like that who get like paid organizer roles and then act like useless wankers. This is kind of interesting because this is where, this is where like the structural buy-in still exists, but there's a level of, of like ideological 
dedication to, to like the great liturgical texts that is very common in leftism. Um, and you, you get this very like notably with uh, like Marxist Lenin, with, with Marxist Leninism. And you do get it to a certain extent with like turfism. As I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of, you, you often see these people like referencing uh, like Engels book on the origin of the family and other similar things. And the, the general claim that they advance, which is advanced by like, you know, people, people who, who, who are in organizations like the CPB or that's the Communist Party of Britain or the CPGBML, that's the Communist Party of Great Britain, Marxist Leninist, which is an absolutely infamous cult um, very abusive and weird, or or like just like standalone Marxist-Leninist individuals, people like Paul Cockshot, who is like this kind of like arch vulgar materialist who is obsessed with like making everything into like a a, a kind of like spreadsheet computer program and figuring out how to make social planning work. Um, they'll take this position that like it's literally against materialism to be trans and because because of that like being being trans is to them the equivalent of being like a revisionist or taking the wrong side in the sino-soviet split yeah they take it further than the the, the usual kind of um tanky thing of saying that uh you know all forms of what they deem homosexuality as bourgeois decadence they go even further and they and they're like no you are anti-materialist you are you are counter-revolutionary you're not just a little bit bourgeois right but it's not it's not it's not um counter-revolutionary in i feel like it's they they don't phrase it in the same way or they well they do phrase it in the same way but they don't mean it in the same way that they would say that like if someone was literally taking the wrong stance on a color revolution no they mean it in terms of like your physical existence is anti-materialist uh, because they cannot conceive of the, their their form of a Marxist philosophy is is sufficiently like weird and fucked up that they cannot conceive of a world where significant enough sections of Marxist philosophy would still apply as to be useful, and trans people would exist, and it would be okay that they would exist and be able to determine the political nature of their existence. I think that comes from the socially conservative kind of tendency that you identified in the sense that because everyone is so socially conservative and they have never grappled uh, with anything more than feminism is when a straight woman likes to read philosophy and wear trousers, but does still get married to her journalist husband and live in suburbia. Don't you worry about that. And she wears makeup. Like that's the level it seems like of like whether social conservatism has pushed any kind of like gender or sexuality theory. And therefore, of course, trans people are seen as like anti-materialist because that's as far as the materialism has gone. They do um, like, again, going back to the, the bloody angles book, which is, you know, not terrible, but it's not, it's not the fucking Bible either. Um, they do have a slightly more advanced uh, position than that in that like they do focus a lot on things like uh, reproductive work and social reproduction but their their interpretations of those concepts are like as i said like very vulgarized it's it's very much like well 
if you're born with a woman, then you're, if you're born with a woman, if you're born with a womb, then you're going to like grow up in the, the like social category within the class structure of being the person who makes new workers. And therefore, blah, 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 blah. They then produce this like series of like logical kind of like assumptions based on the fact that people get born with wombs and that therefore they're women. And it all kind of proceeds from there. And it's, it's, it's like, in physics, there's this concept about how atoms move called like the billiard ball model. Um, and the idea is that like the atoms like hit into each other and then hit into other atoms because of that. And like all motion in the universe is determined, is determined by this. And this is like a, one of the more basic concepts in the, the, the philosophy of atomism, which is often seen as being like quite core to certain interpretations of materialism. And like their interpretation is, is basically that, but they've attempted to apply that to like the realm in which gender and biological sex are wrapped up in each other in the political sphere. And it doesn't fucking work. But because they don't have the, like, the political tool set to examine the fact that it doesn't work, because their political tool set is stuff written by Friedrich Engels, who died like, around about the time that World War I was kicking off, um, they're sort of stuck in this like, recursive feedback loop of increasingly reactionary and hardline political positions that technically derive from like, a revolutionary philosophy, but actually are just massively useless. I think that's what I meant when I was making my like unkind <clears throat> observation is that I don't doubt that, 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 you know, things on entirely like surface level, uh, I'm a Stepford wife, except it's good because I'm also mean to trans people. But I do think that's kind of where it's ended up. You've ended up with people who take angles. Yeah. In this really perverse way. And then kind of like, you know, three or, or two or more, iterations of weird turf like um uh, like f philosophical perversions later that's kind of where you end up where people lose even this weird kind of like um womb equals this equals this they start off with that and it has this ostensible materialist analysis and then you do just get to like the base disgust and and i think this is like really typified by the fact that all of these early people who were speaking of were doing this quite incredible work because, and this is where you have this generational divide of TERFs is when TERFs pop up in these social spaces, a lot of the, um, uh, a lot of the defenses are like, oh yes, but you know, she, um, like Helen Steele, for example, a lot of the, a lot of the anarchists who defended Helen Steele did so because of her actual very good political work. Yeah, like arguably, Helen Steele has a pretty good claim to being a hero of the movement. Yes, uh, and that is why people were absolutely defended her, even though obviously, you know, kill your darlings, never meet your heroes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and similar with, um, you know, the Leeds group, like that that work is is good, and it's something that we really don't have in 2020. However, the majority of like the turf discourse isn't even there. It's, it's people who have looked at these women and, and their work and then ended up in this terrible like world where they're, this is where they're doing, you know, the, the Tommy Robinson collabs and you've ended up in like 2019 with people mass leaving the Labour Party. And you know that all of these kind of older school like battle act trade unionist kind of like battle acts, local organizer turfs 
you know, even maybe 10 years ago, so maybe while they were still turfs, but before kind of things degenerated to this point, even 10 years ago, these people would not have even considered this, let alone uh, lauded it, like... There's so many, there's so many like peculiarities to the to the like the group psychology of the turf mindset and their political history that it's 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 almost a Gordian knot. Like you can't untangle it, and you just have to cut through. It's all Gen X's fault. It's all Gen X's fault, and yeah, indeed. Um, <laughs> that's sorry. how that's how I cut through the Gordian knot. Over, we've solved it. Cases. Okay, I guess I guess to be fair, given that we are doing a Stalinist show trial actually doing nuance is bad and that we should just come up with some incredibly simple narrative about why these people are so shit and then have them shot see this is why i would do better in stalinist russia than you yeah it's because i've been in- over intellectualizing i would have been fucking killed ages ago <laughs> i mean you know apart from the you know being trans thing absolutely would have smashed it the modern tendency of like this kind of almost stressorite turf that you see use kind of like weird kind of almost identity politics about being working class like for example you know smoking or wearing certain kinds of like sportswear or like certain fake accents as a way to kind of justify their super super class reductionist kind of marxism yes it's it's a it's flat cap id poll yeah flat cap id poll and and these kind of not just TERFs, but also kind of like, because some of them are, you know, intellectuals and, and, and trade unionists and columnists. And then some of them are just people who would have been garden variety bigots, but have found these kind of like this, this cultural niche and therefore have almost become left wing specifically because of the brown bit of the red brown that they're being sold. And you have, you do still have the kind of intellectual turfs, you know, you have like, you know, your Jermaine Greer's and, and, and you do still have Bindle, although she's a bit of a, she's a bit of a fringe player now because of this kind of like newer, kind of more red brown, pure reactionary turf movement It's kind of, they've kind of discarded her. They don't like her. She talks too much. Uh, but you do have new contenders such as like, you know, Sylvia Federici and, and, they're, and they're keeping the kind of intellectual left on their side. But it, it really seems that in terms of headlines and in terms of, Going back to like our original, you know, prosecution in terms of increasing stochastic violence towards trans people, like it really seems to have gone into this sort of like class reductionist, like uh, more controls on immigration, kind of like post Blairite labor kind of milieu of shit. Yeah. Uh, in fact, given that you've just raised uh, the actual crux of the case, which is stochastic violence, I think we should talk about the victim of the crime. It's me. Well, no, it's, it's not. <laughs> I am the only victim of British transphobia. Yeah, my co-counsel will now spend, uh, let's see, well, we've scheduled in the notes two hours and 30 minutes for co-counsel to talk about his trans privilege. <laughs> in, t- in terms of the victim, that there is a specific way that, you know, the British TERFs want to get rid of trans people. Uh, and, and, and as you said earlier, it's kind of like a, a social death. So you look at the bathroom bills. That was never going to work as, as shown in the US. Uh, but the whole point is to legislate trans people out of public life, get them out of swimming pools, get them out of schools, you know, get them out of restaurants, anywhere that has toilets, um, get them out of the polling station uh, when you make it harder to have um, people 
have their identity respected, which was part of the point of, you know, these big cases. So we've got, we've got things like the jury debate, bathroom bills, and, and most importantly for trans people, uh, the turf's recycling of um, uh, uh, section 28, which um, obviously, although it was specifically aimed at schools, had far reaching consequences. And turfs are doing exactly the same thing. And in terms of the victim of the, the stochastic violence, it is always going to be the most visible and the least advantaged uh, trans person. Uh, who, who suffers the most. But in terms of on a macro scale, which trans people are the victims, it, 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 or, or why which trans people are the victims, it is, it is like a social, it's like a, it's like a social death, as you say, because trans people don't reproduce in the same way that other minorities do. So the lack of social space for trans people is one of the most efficient ways to get rid of us, unfortunately. There is another angle specifically to the bathroom bill side of things. Like so, what you described is the is the overlap between the 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 modern iteration of the bathroom bill and classic segregationist politics, like the politics of water fountains. But there is another element of it, and this relates more to the Section Twenty Eight gay panic, sexual assault conspiracy theory side of things, which is that it justifies creating the potentially violent space. And like part of that is, as you say, to force trans people out of public life. But the way that it does it is that it creates, like, the, it attempts to create, like, a, a social norm and, if possible, a legal norm for engaging in uh, what used to be called the guardsman's defense. Uh, and this is a legal piece of terminology or, like, legal slang. And it's basically, like, it was a way of getting away with murders. Like, essentially, this is the gay panic murder. Like, the guardsman's defense is like, well, I'm very sorry, my lud. He was trying to bugger me in the bathroom. So, actually, I had to strangle him. I simply had to do it. Yeah, it's just, I had to. There was no other way to escape being buggered than to do strangling. <laughs> um, and... This, this was like a, a sort of like weird piece of like British legal slang. And then you'll sometimes see it like come up in like classic British legal fiction, like the fucking Rumpole books or something like that. The idea is that if someone is going to do the gay thing to you, then you can, you can defend yourself as if, as if some like horrendous act of violence is about to occur. And it, arguably, if there, was, if there was a genuine sexual assault, that would clearly be legit. But that's not the reason why this concept exists. The reason why this concept exists is so that you can then say, well, I reasonably believed that there was, they were going to attempt to bugger me in the bathroom. And so I strangled them. Uh, and this is also relates to um, the, 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 the British political and legal system and the gays and their predatory ways. In the 70s, which is like, I guess, where actually we're proposing a lot of this stuff is kicking off. Wasn't it the, Lib uh, the Liberal Party leader, Jeremy Thorpe, um, was acquitted oh, of- Oh God, yes. Scott. And, 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 and um, Norman Scott was, he was a gay and unfortunately that was a crime. And so Thorpe like got away with it. I don't think that at that point it was a crime any longer. It was at the time at, at the at, at the time when sexual activity between men was illegal, which I think was in the beginning of their affair, 
but um, he was the leader of the Liberal Party, so it was very much a crime for him. Um, yes. A political crime. And it used to be a legal crime, I think, early on in their relationship. Yeah, that was what I was under the impression of, um, which was that at the point at which he was leader of the Liberal Party, it was legal for some of it. Um, sorry, to explain what we're talking about for our listeners, this is a classic piece of British political history where a guy who was the, the leader of the British Liberal Party, who then later, which then later became the Lib Dems, who now live in infamy. And this, this guy was a very successful politician who made the Liberal Party really rather popular, got involved in an absolutely titanic scandal like a proper classic British political court with your trousers down scandal, where it turned out that he had been having a relationship with a significantly younger man and that he had possibly attempted to like conspire to murder this guy. And it all just blew up. And it was like a, one of, you know, just one of these like colossal pieces of like political, like British political history. And it also kind of informed a lot of like the social and cultural debate around like how we perceive homosexuality within the British political realm. Um, I'm not sure how much it would necessarily influence um, the, the, the bathroom stuff specifically. It's, I guess it would be part of like the landscape around it, but rather far off in the landscape, like some kind of like hill on the horizon. Yeah, I think I was just bringing it up as a, as a really good example of um, getting away with uh, murder or attempted murder because of this defense, essentially, in a much more abstract way. Um, um, well, I don't think that I don't think he specifically used the this this specific defense. No, no, I think I was being a bit too abstract with it. Um, no, no, it's fine. It, it does make sense. It does make sense. Like the reason to bring it up. Um, the reason why I wanted to mention the, the so-called guardsman's defense was, as I said, is it, it, is it creates like a psychological space within political discourse in which engaging in violence against trans people, most particularly trans women, is, is, is justified. Um, and this is kind of like at the core of the stochastic violence argument because it is actually quite dangerous to be a trans person, shockingly. <laughs> um, and a lot of the reason why it's dangerous is because sometimes uh, guys will murder you. And also as well, um, in terms of like death by a thousand cuts, Things like the bathroom debate and, you know, um, the GRA debate make things more dangerous for trans people because <clears throat> it makes you super, super vulnerable to terrible housing and employment. And that is going to be, you know, is why trans people in, in Britain, is, uh, you know, especially, I'm not sure about the US, uh, where obviously they just unfortunately just have more murders generally. Um, Trans people are super overrepresented in, in in the houseless population, and and like these kind of policies will contribute to the death by a thousand cuts and danger of being a trans person because of stuff like that. And um, also, you know, once you have lost your job and once you have lost your housing, um, your vulnerability to violence, uh, literal physical violence, also increases. Like it's and, and you see and you see toughs who you were saying earlier about how. Um, 
TERFs essentially have been ignored by a lot of so-called progressive people because they've looked at them and then they've looked at a football hooligan and they've gone, well, the football hooligan could be trying to kick the door in of a mosque. So we'll let the little old ladies be. And obviously in their absence, they've, they've like, you know, taken over a union or whatever, but um, it's true in the sense that they don't wield that power structurally. But I think that is what they want. Cause you, you see TERFs talking with, with absolute glee about if they find a, and it's it is unfortunately, it's always a trans woman that they are, having horrible fantasies about, you know, talking with glee about finding a woman in the toilet and carrying a knife on their person every day, just in case they get to do that. And, and they're excited to be able to have that, that level of like violent impulse be validated because if, if the political landscape succeeds in characterizing women as these horrible predators, then they'll finally be allowed, you know, to, to, to use their Swiss army knife. And, it, and it's like, that's what they all want. They're, they're all baying for blood, but they have to move, the political window like over so that they can have that yeah it's it's almost it's almost like a, a sort of like pathetic bastardized version of like the open carry philosophy in the united states and like everyday carry of like having your like like glock nine mil in your bag yeah you know these women want to be they want to enact like some like sick kind of like George Zimmerman level of like personal defense. It's just that because it's, uh, it's just that in Britain they have to have a, you know, a key ring as opposed to a, a gun. Right. So what I was going to say is that the guardsman's defense, uh, the bathroom bill concept, those things are castle doctrine applied to gender. What was castle doctrine M for our listeners? So, basically castle doctrine is this thing that exists in like the american legal context i i think it might have like some standing in 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 the uk but i'm not entirely clear on that uh and the original concept was that like your home or like a legally occupied place is defined as being like a place where where you are entitled to like protections and under certain circumstances, you are permitted to use force to remain in that place and defend yourself against an intruder, free from legal prosecution. That might oh, result, exactly. that might result from what you do in in the prosecution of that defence. Yes, it's. Uh, wait, hang on. This is. I'm going to go back to the stagnant tide article because it actually talks about this, although not in the specific legal sense, um, which is. The power of a niche comes from keeping the outside people out and the inside people in. You cannot tolerate trans women because your niche relies on drawing a big shining line between men and women and not allowing anything to blur it. Um, you, cannot you cannot tolerate sex work because it blurs the line between income, class, and status. You can't let poor women in the club because there's only so many observer columns to go around. A cleaner with asthma might ask, ain't I a woman? And the response would, must be, the fuck you ain't now come and hoover around my awful husband. <laughs> These tweets weren't for themselves. Like, this is definitely a thing culturally, and I think that's why so many people have jumped on the anti-trans train. But yeah, I think it, I think it is also a thing literally for especially the more radicalized turfs. Right. So here's here's I guess like the conceptual argument I would make is that uh, the turfs are trying to like immanentize a, a real life castle doctrine within social spaces to like compensate and maneuver around the fact that they perceive that they are losing their ability to enact castle doctrine on like the class and cultural level 
It all goes back to those damn kids from uh, the, the team up. Yeah, it goes back to the damn kids. It goes back to Timmy getting away from you. It goes back to privilege being lost. So I guess in order to understand like the the way that Corbynism really challenged things and really fucked things up for for like the turf specifically, we need to look at like the concept of the evil TRA, that's trans rights activist, um, which is like a sort of bogeyman that online turfs have I guess not invented because there there's plenty of trans rights activists, but one that they kind of like venerate as being this all-encompassing evil that's like fighting them on I this mean, like it's eternal battlefield. I myself am active when it comes to my rights sometimes. Who among us has not been a tra? But uh, yeah, they have, a very, they have a very singular viewpoint of what all trans people are in a political sense. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel, I feel like... Um, in a way, they've got this analysis of, well, I guess that's giving it too much credit. It's not exactly an analysis. It's more like a picture. They've got this picture of TRAs, um, which is almost correct because they see them as being like this, this, as I said, like this huge, like massive, all-encompassing evil force. And at the core of that is the fact that the existence of TRAs is linked to a challenge to certain, like, nodes of structural power which the people who have we've just been describing who have like driven the core of the turf political movement they've relied on those same nodes that's where this kind of like opposition comes from and i feel like as a result of that they've created this bogeyman to rationalize what they're doing to these people they have both created the tra bogeyman and also defined the TRA bogeyman in order that they may have countless foes. Because <clears throat> when you look at like a trans rights activist, you know, you talk about like, you know, a gay rights activist and, 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 and you are not defined as being a gay rights activist because you are gay and you exist. You are a gay rights activist because you're like, I would like these specific things. But TERFs will define any trans person as a trans rights activist, essentially any public one. Or, or any trans person who is public and doesn't hate themselves and other trans people, you get labeled the TRA. And also they create them because apolitical trans people who are busy, like, you know, being like, I've got my free NHS hormones that I definitely didn't have to wait five years for. And I just want to live my life or, you know, whatever. Previously, they, they probably would not have weighed in on this stuff. But the more and more radicalized perps get, the more and more that, you know, everyone becomes like, you know, a TRA. Lots of, lots of trans people on social media make jokes that, you know, don't like talking about being trans. They just, they have to defend their right to exist all the time. It's almost as if they've, it's, it's like this, this, this sort of like very comedic and, and like Mr. Bean slapstick stupid version of that classic Marxist concept where there's like a historical situation, which is like a, the thesis. And then the things that are fucked up in that historical situation necessitate the production of um, an antithesis, which is like the, the oppositional force that will destroy or annihilate or fundamentally change the thesis. And like the fact that like, um, 
the 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 situation with like the class dynamic in Britain and like the gender dynamic in Britain in British culture was so fucked up with relation to what we call transness. Both kind of like it necessitated the you know the creation of like the trans rights movement. But these people have like got such an institutional buy-in to I guess the way that they they've had it so far that they've got to engage in this like antithetical and like highly oppositional relationship with what is essentially just a bunch of random gay kids on the internet and as a result in order to politically justify this very very like peculiar stance that that they're, they're enacting against against this demographic against this demographic which is fundamentally almost entirely harmless they've got to come up with all of these things to create a political bogeyman in this sort of like war on terror type of way that create that makes them to be much much bigger and more politically terrible than they ever could possibly be no offense to all of the highly committed anarchist trans people i know who would you know d dearly love to fully explode parliament Tough on trans, tough on the causes of trans. It's literally that, though. Like it's it's very it's very much like of the Blairite political era, and they are they do wish to be tough on trans and tough on the causes of trans. Like you joke, but that's literally it. Yeah, no. When they talk about rapid gender dysphoria and social contagion, which you know these aren't entirely new concepts. You know they've been recycled from again like section twenty eight, but like it, it really is tough on trans, tough on causes of trans. It's it, it it's very much like this whole thing of and 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 it, and it really is it is like characterized as a crime in the sense that you are punished for not doing things correctly uh, because you you're you're being trans as a crime and it's like well why didn't you fill fill in form. 62b subsection i well then i guess we just have to you know try and murder you because you didn't do all of this bureaucracy right you're not a proper trans person then are you indeed um it's like the the, the kafka-esque like fucking catch-22 side of the of the of the of the turf of the turf political stance is very much the the big kind of like crown jewel of of their institutionalized nature um but yeah so i think thing we've got to talk about is Corbynism um, because the, the rise of the evil TRA with his or her or their tentacles in every single aspect of life brutally oppressing the poor turf who is a simple warrior for freedom is something that has happened not exactly in lockstep with the rise of like the Corbynist uh, and like I guess like the modern like social progressive socialist millennial and Zuma movement but it's something that's happened at the at roughly the same time and has intersected with a lot of a lot of the same kind of like social phenomenon. Um, and I'm thinking of things like changes in like the property market, changes in access to higher education, collapse of traditional media like the newspapers and TV channels, and like the 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 the, the huge demographic gulf in terms of like which portions of the population consume what kinds of media and how that intersects with like mainstream British left coddling of transphobia and how that coddling is is very much part of a reactionary movement against this kind of like progressive political wave that has happened over the last kind of I guess coming up on a half decade 
So yeah, it's Corbynism time, baby. We're going to talk about fucking Jezza. First of all, a moment of silence. For well, I mean, everyone. I, I thought it was stupid. Everyone. I thought it was stupid from the get-go. I'm not doing a minute of silence. I'm the guy who starts... No, with, no, 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 no. I'm cracking it, jokes at the Cenotaph. I'm going to be on the front page of the Daily Mail. It's a moment of silence for everyone who against their better judgment. Did any door stopping? Fucking poor bastards. I swear, I swear, I've got, I've got friends who, like, full anarchist friends who've probably got PTSD from that election. It's fucking terrible. Well, this is the thing, actually, because uh, the reason, regardless of whether or not anyone, anyone, any, anyone listening to this supported Corbyn, supported Corbynism, either at the beginning or the end or both in the middle, like any version of that. The reason that Corbynism had this massive effect, and actually specifically in terms of trans people, and you know, in terms of being fringe people who were very disenchanted with electoral politics, which is a similar thing that you get with, you know, the general left sphere, like anarchists and, and commies and stuff, is that it seemed like, and I'm, I'm not making a comment on whether it would have been, that, that Corbynism was a, a, such a massive departure that all of all of these people, um, you know, myself included almost kind of went, God, this is it. Like, if we really are, we're going to, if we're really going to stop having this debate about electoralism, if we're ever going to achieve anything with electoralism, this is when we hop on the bus. And so that led to demographic, like this massive outpouring of what looked like random millennials coming from the woodwork. And that is what all of these turfs saw. They just saw us rising up with our coloured hair and our vegetarian diets and our, um, lack of ability to afford anything, etc. Simultaneously disgustingly immiserated and poor and so privileged and, and like mollycoddled that you're just like constantly consuming the infamous avocado toast with your free education that we um, paid for with 9,000 pounds per year plus extras. The thing that I'm talking about with, with, with uh, like the overlap of these movements is that because the TERFs, as we've established, arguing the case so far, were by this point in time heavily institutionalized, by the like, mid-2000s, heavily institutionalized within like, the Labour Party and, like, the cent- and the centre-left, it meant that they were in a position where they were kind of in the, the, the commentariat, they were within the the decision-making spheres within the trade unions and the, the leading progressive political parties, including like the Greens and the Lib Dems and the SNP. And the SNP is a sufficiently complicated story that we will probably have to um, like dedicate an entire episode to the SNP. But yes. yeah, like, I guess, I guess, it was such a it was such like a big shock to this whole sphere when Corbynism happened because it it happened right on the tail like th- this has sort of been forgotten now that we're like five years after the fact but it happened right on the tail of what was meant to be reinvigorated Blairism like the the most progressive components of Blairism perhaps with slightly fewer wars under Ed Miliband who then got taken to the cleaners by Cameron. And that sort of like wipes it all out. And Corbyn essentially kind of accidentally got in. 
because people just sort of winged it and it turned out he was insanely popular. And, you know, we all remember what happened after that. There was this huge kind of like tidal wave of kind of like, um, I guess, pundit horror. Which they've never recovered from. No, especially they're, they're, not- they're still talking about it like eight eight months after he was like chucked out in disgrace well it's like only a few days ago stella creasy was frothing at the mouth about momentum bro thugs and it's like corbin is gone momentum is gone you have utterly won keir starmer is the worst blah beige racist thing and yet they are still freaking out because of the the sheer like existential threat to punditry that like all of the all of the gay zoomers and millennials pose to them. Right, and the thing is, is there isn't even really like a rump Corbynism anymore. Like they 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 wiped that out when you know they they did the cabinet reshuffles and like they were. It, repeatedly getting rid of the, the, the last remains of the pro-Corbyn people in the shadow cabinet under Starmer. Um, and that all happened very, very quickly. And there's not really been any kind of significant mobilized resistance within the Labour Party. And it's not for, it's not for a lack of will. Like There's certainly still plenty of people in the labor momentum sphere who hate these people. It's just that those people have been completely disenfranchised, which means that the, the, the kind of like centrist pundit blob is still doing this fundamentally out of like fear. And this fear is the, is the, 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 the place where they have a huge area in common with TERFs because TERFs experience this, ex- this exact same phenomenon with trans rights activists in that the appearance of, of like all these trans rights activists, these, these fucking weirdos, again, with their pink hair, disgusting. These appearance of all these trans rights activists on the scene with a, you know, to them, radically new form of feminist politics completely fucked things up for them because it meant they suddenly had to like actually start thinking again. Um, and the thoughts that they had, it turned out, were not very nice. And that got reflected in a lot of these internal battles within the left, uh, whether those were within trade union areas or, or, or whether it was like things like the Anarchist Book Fair, which is an interesting incident that I think we should look at because it's very emblematic. Um, or if it's within, you know, the the dozens and dozens of weird, harassing, bullshit incidents that happened within constituency Labour parties. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 one example um, of a turf in London called Venice Allen, whose brother was editor at the Morning Star, and and she and her brother were both big in the Labour Party, and she's one of the people who is now big in Women's Place, and she harassed a at the time teenage girl for having the, um, you know, having the brass neck to be trans and be a woman in labor and uh, be on, you know, some short lists and some groups for women in labor. Right. And the, she- Yeah, the short, list, the short list stuff was stuff that was a thing that kept coming up. Yeah, and, and, and now you look at her post Corbyn because all of this stuff, um, 
when when she was harassing uh, this woman and um, you know going to Corbin kind of like dinners and literally she skulked around in the corner. Um, now in 2020, when that's all over, she's left the Labour Party, and um, all she does is is talk about how much she hates all trans people and all gay people, and she's lost any pretense at politics because, like we've spoken about in in, in a Rowling app, like the radicalization spiral has just completely gotten to her, and she can't. People people like this aren't thinking at all politically anymore. But clearly they were once big political thinkers. They were clearly very invested in like the British left as a project. Yeah, it's like, it, again, it's a thing that you see reflected with like the higher echelons of the old school turfs, the people who were in the Leeds, like the Leeds Radical Feminist Network. Uh, what was it called? Not the Leeds Radical Feminist Network, the Leeds Revolutionary Feminist Group. A lot of them were serious intellectuals. You know, really producing like intelligent pieces of work, whether whether one agrees with them or not. Um, like these people were not not entirely stupid, except now they're basically on the same rough rhetorical level as an opinion writer for the Spectator. And like, I feel like there's a level of of like theoretical degeneration and political degeneration that has gone hand in hand with their institutionalization and yeah. following that with their drift into increasingly reactionary positions. Um, and that, that like accounts for like the small time activists like, like uh, Venice Allen and accounts for like the, like the, the radical feminist veterans like Julie Bindle and Linda Bellos who arguably were once at the intellectual core of the feminist movement. They have, they have, they've had this kind of rhetorical degeneration, I think because of the same reason that they have this fear of the TRA, uh, which, it, which is something we keep alluding to, alluding to in this episode where they've accrued all of this institutional power and they've had this rhetorical stagnation and they've just become quite cannibalistic. Uh, like I was saying about a lot of the new style turfs like Venice Allen really, you know, not, not necessarily just her, but I'm not going to list off every single turf in this episode. There is a literal list, which we have in our podcast notes. Which they compiled. We didn't do this. We, we, we have lives. All of this weird in-depth information we have is like the turfs have made themselves. Yeah, so um, the thing is, here's the thing, is that we, we compiled a very detailed um, like notes document for this episode. And the thing is, is actually, we didn't actually, have, well, I, I was the main person who did the compiling. I didn't actually have to do that much work for this, because it turns out they've just fucking written it all down for us. Yeah, you have to go up, uh, like, two Twitter links deep, and then you suddenly find that they've been like, and here's the plans to the deep secret, like, top secret lava cave, and here is the bomb disposal uh, instructions, and uh, can I offer you a cup of tea on the way out? Right, it's literally the Bond villain thing, where where like yeah. Goldfinger <laughs> explains that he's yeah. going to like drop a <laughs> nuclear bomb on Fort Knox to James Bond, <laughs> and it's like I was assured that this never actually happens, but it turns out for these fucking chuds, it does. 
It's not just it's not just a Bond villain though. Like as as the whole like Sarah Deaton clean Geddon thing shows. It's like if a Bond it's like if Goldfinger finger was Mrs. Bouquet. Um, oh, I don't know if you'll get that reference. Hang I on. was thinking more like um, they're like Lucius Malfoy from Harry Potter, which is very appropriate because it's a J.K. Rowling book. Oh yeah. In, the, in that they're like evil and really like horrible, but also sort of comedically shit yeah they want to do fascism but they keep getting tripped up because like they're 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 not so bothered about kind of like you know the the military industrial process of fascism and more about the kind of you know like the the sub the subcommittee makeup yeah it's like if you only do fascism via um collective statements as opposed to actually having a squad or two then you can't can't quite hack it uh, which arguably would explain why they have to be in an institutional position to even be successful at this because the only people who can do the squad thing for them are either people doing it in a kind of abstract sense via other existing institutions like the media or via the stochastic mechanisms which they are setting up or if they ever actually manage to get any of these legal reforms through which is not impossible considering how Liz Truss, the the current women and equalities minister is behaving then they would get the literal squads to do it, i.e. the pigs yeah, and I think this is where they are both. They've, they, unfortunately, uh, w- with all of this rhetorical degeneration, they have still managed to take a, a, a surface weakness, which is you know not having fash squaddies, and turned it into their greatest strength, which is that like for the last year or two years, pretty much every trans person I know has lived with the existential threat and horror um, of every single legal challenge and also the growing kind of like confidence that sooner or later one of these is going to succeed and everyone's tired it's like like you know it's, it's a war of attrition because every time this happens you you get uh like uh, a mainstream organization or, or just a or just a group of trans people who are reluctantly cast into the role of the tra having to counter these rabid turfs with their email lists that they circulate on mum's net all sharing the same template letter, which is one of their tactics. Is, you know, they, they will they will do essentially like mail-ins in in, in the same way that American Democrats uh, will will try and mobilize their left to do. Um, right, email and, your congressman. We have to save the United States Postal Service. Yeah, and and turfs are really great at doing it in exactly this fashion, and they even use because of the institutional links to the left. Like they use pretty much exactly the same rhetoric as like an American center left party would and does constantly and which you and i will have participated in to some extent yeah i'm sure i've done a few change.org petitions personally yeah and, and that's the sense that that turfs are playing on it and, and pretty much everyone i know is convinced that sooner or later they're they're going to be um successful not necessarily because they are the world's best organizers but because it's very clear that we have a government that like really does not give a shit about anything but inflicting the most misery possible. Also, and an the opposition. Is, the thing is, is that, sorry. Oh no, that's all I was going to say. I was like, and all we have is Keir Starmer. All we have is Keir Starmer. Fuck me. Um, <laughs> what I was going to say is that the Tories 
The Tories actually kind of give less of a shit about this than, than Labour. Because, like, for Labour, this is, this is like a, a, a doomsday culture war issue. It's like, it's, you know, it's, it's up there with, like, grooming gangs for, for the Labour Party. Um, but for the Tory party, the Tory party are like, yeah, um, don't, we don't care about trans people. They can, um, they can die if they want. Um, I guess they can live if they want, as long as they're paying me rents, whatever. Um, and kind of as a result, they've never bothered to go on a huge legislative crusade. Um, but also, if they felt like it would be helpful, they would happily just kind of like do it as an afterthought, which is very much, yeah, I... very much the vibe I get from Liz Truss is that the only reason why she's even paying attention to this is because she's kind of like mildly surprised that she even has to deal with this slightly stupid problem, which is kind of taking away from her important, important role of doing more like absolutely bonkers austerity to women. Um, <laughs> And because of that, because of that environmental factor, the TERFs only have to be lucky once. It's like the IRA thing, right? We have to be lucky every time. Yeah, we're a factor in this scenario. Which is fucked. I want to be the one firing the mortar. I want to be the IRA. We should be the IRA. Why can't we be the IRA? Why do we have to be fucking Margaret Thatcher? It sucks. It completely blows. Not only, and this is not how only, not only are we Henry Kissinger, but we're Margaret Thatcher. Except, unlike both of those people, we Fuck don't even have life. the luxury of fucking winning. Fuck okay, my to, life. To, be, to, be, to be fair, Henry Kissinger never won a war in his life, so maybe just that. Yeah, but how lavish was his funeral? That's a good point. I got. A pr Wait a minute, he's not dead. <laughs> Wait, what? No, Henry Kissinger is still alive. <laughs> Okay, well, yeah, no, they, they, they've definitely managed to do this kind of like IRA thing. And I think this is why, like you said, like the Tories not giving a shit is why I think trans people are so convinced that the TERFs are going to be uh, successful, is that like they do this thing of like, uh, you know, um, email your congressman or alternatively love bomb or love bomb or egg your local politician on any one issue. They have cut their teeth on doing this with um, with Labour. They only ever seem to do the softly, softly love bombing version for the Conservatives. And really, all it's going to take is a single Tory having someone whisper in his ear, like like you know him being like in the middle of his like caviar state subsidised dinner, the um, with his like thirty pounds daily dinner allowance and like a spad, a little a little Tory spad whispering in his ear, like oh oh. Oh, sir, women's place are here to speak to you about the transgender menace. Right, and, 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 you, know, and you, know, you know what happened? Like, what? They'll, they'll be in the midst of another round of NHS cuts, and they'll be, they'll be chopping up like another abortion clinic or something. And they'll be like, okay, right, well, we've got to throw them a bone. We don't often throw anyone a bone, but we might as well for this one, because uh, you know, unlike you know, poor people, we do occasionally have to cater to upper-middle-class women. So what we'll do is to make up for the fact that we're actually just completely screwing everyone over and getting rid of like whatever remains of like child support systems. We'll just fuck up some gay kids and that'll make it all right with the mums.
And yeah, we'll we'll throw the mum's little Timmy's uh, carcass for them to pull apart with their bare hands while we yoink out all of the the. I mean, there's not really many because this is what they did the other way with the um, equal marriage. They did the, exactly this, but on the liberal end. They were like, oh, look, look, we've got gay marriage sweeties. And then like behind, they were like, oh, also every single benefit for, for a, for a mum is gone. Every single one. Like there's not that many left to cut. But yeah, that's a good point. Um, I feel like it's arguable that because there's not that much left to cut, it might not come as a compensation for a remaining like system of cuts because it's quite clear that they can deflect criticism of cuts. Like you know, actually, I, I saw some like polling about this the other week. Um, people do still buy into the cutting the deficit narrative quite heavily. Well, it's been ten years. It's been it's been ten years, and also it has now been economically demonstrated that deficits do not fucking matter that much at all. Nevertheless, quite a big chunk of the British population, the uh, the British voting public, still buy into the into the into the the deficit narrative. As a result, they can probably still kind of just cut willy nilly. Um, therefore, if a big loss for our side was going to happen on the um, legislative angle it would probably come in compensation for some kind of regressive social policy not sure what that would be but arguably that might be another realm of weakness i mean they've already they've already been incredibly successful with the hostile environment they have already been incredibly successful with um, just making sure that working class women have absolutely nothing. I don't really know what else there is because um, they've also they've also demonstrated that they just absolutely despise black people. Yeah. Um, which was a, which was another interesting area of division for the turf movement from the rest of the feminist movement. Yes, because the turf movement. Um, I mean, I, I, I was originally talking about like the, the mainstream electoral po politicians, especially the Tories. But also, yeah, the turfs. A lot of them that they have done some kind of anti-Semitic dog whistle about the evil TRA culture war, but they also, for some reason, decided that they were going to alienate every single black woman by saying that uh, BLM was like a puppeted by the the TRAs or whatever. It is notable that if you go on the Women's Place website, they, they actually have an article about how they had a run-in with Dawn Foster, who is only second to Diane Abbott in terms of the level of like public ire directed towards a female politician. Yeah. Coincident uh, uh, uh. Coincidentally, two, probably the two most politically prominent black people in the entire country. Well, actually, no. There's there's David Lammy as well. Yes, but they 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 made the mistake of being women. Uh, that's true. It was a bit of a fucking fuck up for them, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm. So, all of this talk about like um, their integration within the elite, and all of this stuff like like contempt for people who are weaker than them, and how that got filtered through their the, like the turf the historical turf journey from being like really radical outsiders doing militant street action, not wildly dissimilar to what anti-fascists attempt to do 
to becoming basically the kind of like the pundit class and a bunch of city councillors, it's it's a tra it's a transition from like insurgent radicalism to like popular elitism, and turfism is now a, a, po a politics, particularly within like the British left wing political system. It's a, it is a politics of popular elitism, um, and like you know, much as we've come back to it before, and we we always link back in every episode to Umberto Eco's essay on Ur fascism. I'll I'll just quote directly here: "Elitism is a typical aspect of any reactionary ideology, insofar as it is un, as it is fundamentally aristocratic." And aristocratic and, milita and militaristic elitism cruelly implies contempt for the weak. Eurofascism can only advocate a popular elitism. Every citizen belongs to the best people of the world. The members of the party are the best amongst the citizens. Every citizen can or ought to become a member of the party. But there cannot be patricians without plebeians. In fact, the leader, knowing that his power was not delegated to him democratically, but was conquered by force, also knows that his force is based upon the weakness of the masses. They are so weak as to need and deserve a ruler. Since the group is hierarchically organized, according to the military model, every subordinate leader despises his own underlings, and each of them despises his inferiors. This reinforces the sense of mass elitism. Um, the TERFs do not have a militaristic model. They have uh, a social and cultural influence model. They have like a model of academics. The underlings aren't people in a military hierarchy. They're people within like a, a social cultural institutional hierarchy within the trade union system, within like constituency labor parties, within small local left wing groups, and as a result, when a disruption happened in those spheres, within like the public media sphere, within the Labour Party as a field of battle, and that disruption, you know, took the form of like the modern, the modern social, like socialist left-wing progressive movement, largely populated by millennials, who were all heavily pro-LGBT, and quite a lot of the prominent activists were LGBT and often trans. That meant that there was such a disruption to this proto-fascist popular elitism that it meant there had to be a reaction. And that is how the crime came to be committed. That's how we came to have this kind of like stochastic violence of terrorism. Structurally, it had to happen to protect their position. The mechanism by which it was done was like this popular elitist structure, this popular elitist method. And that's how we got here into this kind of fucked up situation. I find the turfs guilty of crimes. Yeah, I find them like pretty deeply guilty. Um, both both collectively in their organizations and individually. There's some there's some there's some guilty men and women. There are some there, there some, some very guilty people of very many crimes, uh, but but only two genders. <laughs> but considering that we, as the uh, exalted judge, jury, executioner, witness, prosecution, 
defense and uh don't miss anything cops yeah we're the fucking gender crime cops tough on tran tough on the causes of tran i'm just gonna be saying that constantly now it's excellent though we cannot cart the turfs away to the gulag much as we wish much as we wish we could take them to gender gulag what we can do is think about you know now we've thought about how how we got here and why the british left is like quite fucked like what how can we stop this from happening like again or, or stop it from continuing to happen? Or like, is there like anything we can learn from this depressing fucking mess? I feel like there is like, in my opinion, and you, you'll probably differ from me uh, in the, in, in, in the kind of more militant lens, but in, in a more kind of broad strokes way, all of the people that we've kind of covered along these different tendencies of um, turfism. And this is where I think you can abstract the, this little hist potted history out and, and use it to apply it to like modern kind of like leftists or organizers that you might see is that like these people all have a vested interest in perpetuating like this id pole kind of like culture war dynamic. It both ways as well, like, you know, flat cap id pole as well as trans landlord id pole. Uh, but 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 turfs, what they do is they flatten the contradictions between uh, you know the entire women's between poor women and and black women and trans women, women at different axes of oppressional power. All of these contradictions, which second wave feminism did not provide an answer for, they just flatten them by using base gender essentialism. And they do this because it specifically benefits them, you know, whether they're like journalists or spads um, or paid organizers or NGO founders or workers. It, it literally benefits them, but it also indirectly benefits the kind of red brown elements of the left who we spoke about, who, you know, they may not be able to directly benefit because they don't they're not they may not be women so they may not be able to benefit from second wave feminism in that way but they're all protected by buying into this from developing like a properly gender inclusive materialist analysis like they all want to stick to the strasserite stuff and, and talk about like you know um our, our mate working down as a you know a, a, as a laborer and that's the only real job for a real leftist man because like, if they did develop a gender-inclusive materialist analysis, it would open them up to scrutiny and open their behavior up to scrutiny because like these people may talk a big Marxist talk, but they, they don't live up to basic leftist ideals of like, you know, interpersonal care and like interpersonal equality and respect. Um, and that is just a general problem with the British left, I think. You have this kind of almost like fake dichotomy of like different points of failure in organizations where you have this kind of paid organizer type who um, is constantly creating projects in a very managerial way. But you do also have these kind of like, people talk about them as in terms of leftist men. But yeah, you, you see this, th these two groups being served by this when you see a link up between like really intellectual kind of turf thinkers like Nina Power or Angela Nagel to like much more like red brownie kind of like lefty lads i think also going back to the domino kind of effect we were talking about because trans people don't present this like immediate material threat uh, and it's much more of a kind of conceptual abstracted threat a group stance on on trans liberation whether they're it's just generally terrible or a bit liberal or like truly transformative is like quite a reliable indicator 
of a group. It's not like moral purity. Like I'm, I'm not in favor of the vampire castle, uh, but uh, which is the Mark Fisher text, but um, just kind of an indicator of a commitment to the status quo with trans liberation as a litmus test, because like all of these leftist groups want to be right and moral and good. Like even JK Rowling, like we spoke about, like she, she, she wanted to think that she was in the right. And like when people come up and go, Oh, well actually, please can your feminism be intersectional? Please can your conversations about reproductive labor be intersectional and trans inclusive? Like whether or not a group goes absolutely ape shit and then radicalizes into a turf, um, you know, out, out, outpost, which, which obviously we've seen with the labor stuff is like a really good indicator of like where they are generally in a leftism. I think by destroying the false divide between like id poll stuff and worker stuff and actually seeing it for what it is in terms of like, tr like trans liberation as a, as a, not, it's not that it's not important in of itself, but it's not also the be all and end all. Like I, I don't think that trans liberation is the only struggle or even the most um, important struggle at all but it is more like if you have a group where people are willing to listen to a random trans person be like oh hey guys please please be nicer like they're probably a lot more uh caring in general or like a lot more intellectually rigorous um and so like i think a way to fix a lot of this stuff is a lot of the kind of organizing shit that like em and i bang on about in our personal lives which is much more of an emphasis of avoiding paid organizers and like avoiding kind of like um uh non-transparent like squaddy kind of leftist groups because like what makes them vulnerable to these turban outposts is what makes them vulnerable to all kinds of bad shit like cult shit rhetorical stagnation i don't know to me kind of future proofing against this will be generally good for leftists not just trans ones the future-proofing against this kind of thing is future-proofing us against other kind of problems. E and I, like, we, we're both... Like, this is an anti-fascist podcast. We both do anti-fascism. One of the organizations which we uh, overlap in often does anti-fascist work. And although turf shit has not been a significant problem in that organization, future-proofing against internal dynamics and, like, internal problems that are created by bad internal dynamics is something that has come up in that organization it will come up in any organization and i feel like if we as as like people who want to be proper social revolutionaries and really want to come up with improved mechanisms that human beings can can live in and live with in like some kind of like harmonious and productive manner we've got to kind of get to grips with future-proofing against these sorts of like destructive feedback loops that create cult-like environments that create what's called like high demand environments which is a, a phrase which comes up in in cultic studies a lot where an organization is very demanding of its members and an ideology is very demanding of its members and that is one of the things that socially recreates the cult system that kind of future-proofing is is a is a a defense mechanism against the social reproduction of abuse and if there is one thing that turfism absolutely is it is the social reproduction of abuse 
that is what this whole argument about stochastic violence is. That is what they're doing. And they're doing it in the way that like a radio broadcasts signal, but also it will happen in your local organization if you are an organizer. It might not happen with turfism specifically as an ideology, but it will happen with something else. And you'll have to cope with that. And like we've had to cope with that. And like sometimes you are successful and sometimes you aren't. But you do have to be aware that this stuff does just rear its heads like the Hydra. Um, and either you can take this reformist approach where you know you, you, you chop off some of the heads and they grow back a bit smaller and that you can kind of pretend that the problem has gone away and you can show to people that you've chopped off the heads and that reinforces your institutionalized position. Or you can do the more difficult thing and you can actually grapple with the Hydra and you can burn the bloody stump and the head will not grow back. And you will have a social system within your political sphere or within the wider political sphere if we ever are successful in the longer term where these abusive power structures have serious difficulty growing back because we've actually managed to make a long-term difference. This has happened in the past with other kinds of social movements where they've managed to, you know, click the ratchet over a few times and make counter-revolutionary change really quite a difficult affair. And I think, like, one thing that we should learn from this is that we need to figure out a mechanism by which we establish that reality. I personally think it has a lot to do with um, interpersonal stuff. And the reason I think that is, it's my, you know, it's my pet peeve. I am one of the leftists who, you, you might not know me personally or know how you know me, but I will know everyone and I'll just pop up in things where I shouldn't be. Uh, and one thing I've seen is, is, is one change in, um, in, in literal kind of like interpersonal care, which also in, includes communication, is things like taking water and food to, to actions. I've seen people talk about how that should be better for years. And then to get the culture to change uh, around that one thing. And I, I, this sounds really pessimistic. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm saying it took ages to get people to bring water to protest, but it did. However, once that happened, which took you know months and years of people just being like, please do this, please do this. What now happens is people have a network of, you know, communication, which is, is not top down communication. It's everyone kind of like rhizomatically organizing their hydration essentially. And out of one simple thing, you see this outgrowth of communication and connection. And I think the same can and sometimes is done around bodily autonomy and, 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 and safety from violence. And, and, and God knows people fuck it up all the time. But I, I think the key really lies with um, interpersonal safeguarding and interpersonal care and interpersonal communication in leftist spaces. And to, to speak about this in a kind of self-interested manner, this is in your personal interest to do this because if you do this, what you are doing is you are reproducing the revolutionary, which is the person who you want more of in order to do the revolution. So if there is, if there is one lesson you take from this kind of like collective condemnation of the, the problems of turfism and what that implies about the problems of leftism in Britain as a whole, it's that turfism was like a parasitic growth or is a parasitic growth that emerged 
as a result of a form of politics that on a practical and on an ideological level wasn't able to reproduce a revolutionary system and instead it reproduced a reactionary system so you do have to do the kind of i guess the the things that on the face of it are completely unconnected from the trans rights struggle and if you could combine those basic things like hydration like um you know doing doing like a kind of like basic forms of like fair praxis with kind of like a grander strategic and ideological interventions in explicitly in favor of trans rights then we can kind of fuck up the the turf squad hydrated revolutionaries are better revolutionaries etc etc also if you are trans inclusive it's a direct benefit to you as well because i mean for a start trans women they've got they've got good jokes no no uh, but like a lot of a lot of trans writers and trans thinkers are the ones who are doing all of this work it is the story a taylor's oldest time in the left that like the people who are on the material knife's edge will be doing revolutionary work because they have to because it is a question of survival for them i can't think of the like the amount of times when i've read like a piece of text that was developed by someone of my generation that was more theoretically insightful than most other pieces of work that have been produced by socialists anarchists or communists within the last 150 years with the exclusion of a few really really significant figures and the author of that particular text was gender non-conforming it's happened so much Yeah, the most revolutionary stuff I see um, is, is, is usually um, from trans feminine people uh, writing on like the, the body politic and also social reproduction and from there all of these like incredibly intensely important things in, in just a perspective that like you don't see elsewhere. Consider all of these points, dear listener. Yes, please do. Going back to something you've just said about about uh, trans people and their their creative qualities. Before we sign off, we have one last request to our audience. If you're a trans person and you have a terrible Bandcamp page, we would like to use your music for our intro. You may have noticed we don't have intro music yet, and this is a huge gap in our in our podcaster repertoire. If you are happy with us using your music, please send us a message. And we are happy to discuss any remuneration that you might require from this service. Thank you. Any final words? For the love of God, drink water at protests. Any final words more directly related to the subject matter of the episode? Uh, the British left's issues with trans people are numerous and for many reasons. The articles that we uh, mentioned and linked to, the Angry Women documentary is free on YouTube. If you search Angry Women, please watch it. The uh, Alan Theodore article called The Stagnant Tide, stuff like that. Read this stuff because if you look at it with a critical eye, it's not just a laundry list of the horrors of, um, you know, the British uh, spectator class. It is also contains within it the key of like how to actually be less of a shit left. The end. Okay. Bye bye, everybody. Bye. We're going, 
We will attempt next week to do an episode about the repression of Polish trans rights activists. See you next time. <laughs>